Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. Well, good morning, church. All right, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 11, uh, picking up where we left off reading just a second ago. So Mark chapter 11, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback one there near you. So feel free to use that. If you need a Bible, that's our gift to you. It's good to see everybody's faces today. Y'all, y'all look good. Um, as we get into this section of Scripture, we're getting into a section of Scripture that uh, is the last third of the Gospel of Mark. It took us a while to get here. But this last third of the Gospel of Mark really centers in on the last week of Jesus' earthly life here. So there's a lot of details that go into the last week of Jesus' life. And this one begins with the triumphal entry. So basically, we're celebrating Palm Sunday in September. So that's odd, right? So that's what we're doing because it's, it's COVID year. We can do whatever we want. So... Um, So we're going to do Palm Sunday this morning, and uh, so we have palm branches for you. I'm just kidding, we don't. Um, Yeah, so we're going to be in that section of Scripture. It reminds me of a book that came out a few years back by a pastor by the name of Kyle Adelman, and it was Not a Fan. Anybody remember this book, Not a Fan? So basically the premise of this book was uh, not all followers of Jesus are followers of Jesus. A lot of them are just fans of Jesus. They're, they're all about Jesus. They're fans of Jesus. And he says a fan, for a definition, is an enthusiastic admirer. And so, I, I mean, there's an enthusiastic admirer here today of uh, the Eagles football team. I'm pretty sure. See, like, I knew that there was a fan here. Uh, Donnie's got his jersey on. He's got his socks on that match. I mean, he is an enthusiastic fan. So that's a fan for you. Uh, Kyle Adelman says this. He says, it's a guy, you'll like this, it's a guy who goes to a football game with no shirt on, please keep yours on, and uh, his chest painted. I don't know. I, anybody ever done that? Show of hands. You, you gone to a game and there's two of us. There's, there you go. There's three of us in here. We've done that. Uh, I was the B for Braves. Woo. Um, he sits in the stands and cheers on his team. He got a signed jersey hanging on his wall. He has multiple bumper, bumper stickers on the back of his car, but he's never been in the game. He's never strapped on pads and taken a hit in the middle of the field, right? This guy, he's, he's a fan. He yells, he cheers, but nothing is really required of him. There's no sacrifice that has to be made. And the truth is, as excited as he seems, if his team isn't cheering, isn't isn't doing very well. If his team has a few losing seasons, he's quick to jump off of the fan wagon and jump on the bandwagon and become an Alabama fan. Oh, come on. That was I set that up. That was so good. That was for all you former Tennessee fans. Okay, so, you know, there's a difference between a fan and a follower of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, but Jesus was never interested in just having fans. And we'll see that in, in the section of Scripture this morning. And he says, My concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. And every week, all the fans come to the stadium where they can cheer for Jesus but have no interest in truly following him. The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not close enough that he requires anything of them. Kyle Adaman says this, fans often confuse their admiration for devotion. They mistake their knowledge of Jesus for intimacy 
with Jesus. Fans assume their good intentions make up for their apathetic faith. So as we get into this section of Scripture, we're about to read it. I'm going to ask you, are you a follower of Jesus Christ this morning? And as you, and as you evaluate that this morning, as we walk through the Scripture, you can't look at certain criteria in order to define that. So you can't look at cultural comparisons. You can't look at what the culture says a Christian is and what a Christian isn't. So you, gotta, you can't look at that. You can't look at religious rules. You can't look at how well you follow the religious rules that are set before you. You can't look at denominational measurements. You can't look at, well, I go to this church, and I'm a part of this church, and I believe these things. You can't look at family heritage. You can't say, well, I was raised in a Christian home, and I have Christian parents, and they drag me to church. You know, I had a drug problem as a kid. They drug me to church every day. You know, you can't say that. Okay, okay, good. Um, I stole that one. It didn't work. Okay, so you can't look at biblical knowledge. You can't say, well, I know all of this about Jesus because these are not the things that make you a follower of Jesus. What makes you a follower of Jesus is actually following Jesus. And so let's read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, starting verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Let's keep reading verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word. We ask God that you would allow us to see you this morning clearly through scripture. Lord, allow us to be moved by your spirit that you've given us. Allow us to see the sacrifice and the obedience that you lived out and how that is to be lived out through us, through your presence. So God, we offer our lives to you this morning, I pray. I pray that we're here because we want to follow you. God, we want to give our lives for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So we see, as we talked about last week, Jesus is continuing towards the cross. And so he's continuing towards the cross. And as he's entering in the city of Jerusalem, the population at that time was probably about 50,000 in the city. And it was Passover week. So at Passover week, uh, massive crowds would come in. All Jews from all over the surrounding areas would come in to give sacrifices to celebrate Passover. And Passover is when they celebrate their exodus from uh, Egypt, right? So you know this, there's, there's all kinds of lambs being slain and they're all entering in. So the population of Jerusalem would grow some three times what it normally was. So it could be 100,000 to 120,000 people all there in the city packed 
Well, if, if that's the case, then you know how packed the city streets get here when there's a lot of things going on. Can you imagine what the city was like? I mean, you probably couldn't walk. There was, it's hard to imagine crowds these days, right? So there was a lot of people in one area. And so Jesus is entering in the city at Passover week. He's entering in. He's being obedient. And, and even uh, the historian uh, Josephus would say that when this many Jews would come in, that the Romans would get uneasy because they were afraid that when this many Jews came into an area that there was going to be a revolt, that they were going to try to overthrow the government. So they're already on edge. First thing we see this morning is Jesus is committed to obedience. Jesus is committed to obedience. So let's read these scriptures, the first few, real quick again. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany at the, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately... As you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it to me. Jesus is committed to obedience, but he's not just committed to obedience in general. He's committed to detailed obedience. This detailed, so complete detailed obedience looks different than careless obedience. It's in the details. And the reason I know this is because uh, yesterday we, we cleaned our house, right? So it was a good day to clean the house. And my son was out of town. He was out of town all day yesterday. And so, you know, just kudos to my daughter because she sacrificed herself like no other. And she cleaned her brother's gross teenager room, okay? Now, when I say that, she straightened it up, right? She did a good job. Now, cleaning in detail is different than cleaning in general. Am I right? So you can shove things in drawers. You can shove things in closets. You can make things look pretty, pretty nice. You can Febreze it, right? You got to Febreze it, especially if you have teenagers. They Febreze the room. But cleaning in detail is different. Here's the deal with obedience. We can follow Jesus in general. Careless obedience. I know these things. I don't do any of the bad things. But what if we were to apply obedience in the details of our life? What if in the very details of our life, we were like, Jesus, you have every single detail of my allegiance. For a lot of us, it would look completely different. Biblical obedience is to hear God's word and act accordingly. To hear God's word and act accordingly. So when I say that to you as a biblical definition of obedience, when you hear God's word in all areas and details of your life, do you apply it? That's a different set of obedience, a different level of obedience. A true follower of Christ is not content with careless obedience, with doing just enough. They want the character of Christ to lead them towards detailed obedience for the glory of God, not casual obedience for the contentment of man. Because here's the deal. When we follow God casually, we do it in a way that brings contentment to us. Well, I'm doing just enough. I feel pretty good about what I'm doing. I feel like I'm following the rules I'm supposed to be following. But when you begin to follow Jesus in the details of your life, it's not always going to be a bunch of content. It's going to be hard. It's going to be called sacrifice and pain in your life. Jesus exemplified this. Look, Hebrews 10, 7 says, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is it is written of me in the scroll of the book. He came to do the will of the Father as it was written. John 14, 31. But I do as the Father has, what? Commanded me. So that the world may know that I love the Father. How will the world know that Jesus loves the Father? Detailed obedience. 
How will the world know that we love Jesus? I mean, really think about that. Detailed obedience. And I'm not talking like legalistic, follow all the rules. I'm not doing any of that. I'm talking about there's something different about them because all they care about in the details of their life is glorifying God. There's just something different about them. They love Jesus more than they love their own family. They love Jesus more than they love anything this world can offer. They just look different. Let's keep reading John 12, 49. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a, here's the word again, commandment. What to say and what to speak. In the parallel passage we find in Matthew chapter 21, telling the same story, it says this, Matthew 21, 4 and 5, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, a foal, of beast, of burden. This points us to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9 was prophesied probably some 500 years before this took place. And so this is what Zechariah says in chapter 9, 9 through 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Think about this prophecy for just a second. There's details in this. This is a detailed prophecy of what Jesus is going to accomplish. And when we see him getting on a donkey and coming into Jerusalem, it's in the details. Your king is coming. Jesus is king, and he's riding in, mounted on a donkey. He came to bring peace, and he brings peace to the ends of the earth. It's for all nations. He comes bringing salvation through the blood of his covenant, and he will set what? The prisoners free from the waterless pit. We are set free from hell. We're set free from the bondage of our sin and our slavery because there is a coming king who mounted on a donkey and was determined to walk in obedience to God's word so that God could be glorified and we could be justified and saved. This is remarkable obedience. Jesus is Lord and master of every detail of his divine destiny and our eternal security. So you can think about this. Some 2,000 years ago, Jesus was all about the details of his obedience for the salvation of those of us who come to know him. It's all about the details. His detailed obedience to the Father brings us salvation. Jesus is coming as a humble king by means of being a Passover sacrifice. He comes in on Passover. John the Baptist saw this back in chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus came as king, but he came as a Passover Lamb. He enters the city of Jerusalem during Passover to show that he's going to take away the sins of the world for all nations and all peoples to the ends of the earth by the blood of his covenant and redeem us and save us from the pit, the waterless pit. What great prophecy, what great hope, what great detail and obedience that Jesus exemplifies. And look what Hebrews says, Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. 
In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Uh, get, Get this. In his flesh, he came to earth and he learned obedience through what he suffered And the way he lived, he lived so perfectly that he was able to pay a price that we could never pay for the redemption, for our redemption and for our sins. And he has given us eternal life for those who, there's the word there, obey him. So Jesus is all, he's committed to obedience. He's committed to a detailed obedience to to finish the work that God has laid out from the beginning of the world. And so he calls us to be detailed in our obedience. See, here's the deal. Detailed obedience leads to sacrificial living. Detailed obedience leads us to sacrificial living. So the second thing I want you to see is that Jesus is commanding obedience. Jesus is committed to obedience and he's commanding obedience. Let's keep reading verse 3. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. I, I always read this as a Jedi mind trick. Like in my mind, it's like they just go up, they find this colt, and they're like, hey, what are you doing? Take my colt. And they're like, the Lord needs it. And they're like, oh, okay, but fine. Go ahead and take it. They're like, it worked. And they just walk off with it. I don't know. See, Jesus is commanding obedience. He's committed to obedience, but he's also commanding obedience. In in Matthew chapter 16, I think it's the next slide. Verses 24 through 26, he says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is familiar, right? We've talked about this. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Look, Jesus is saying, I'm committed to obedience, detailed obedience, and I'm calling you and I'm commanding you to detailed obedience for the glory of God, which means what I'm about to do, I'm calling you to do because I'm going to do it through you. Jesus is going to give us his very own presence, the power of his Holy Spirit as a helper to lead and guide us in obedience through suffering, through sacrifice. So the questions that remain here are, if the Lord commands it, will you do it? That's a simple question, right? So let's think about this detailed obedience for just a second. You get into God's word, you begin to get into the details of God's word. If he commands it, Will you do it? Or do you think you know better? Well, it doesn't really apply to me. That's not the culture that we're in. That's not how people define this these days. Will you do it? Not only that, if the Lord needs it, are you willing to give it? I mean, because a donkey back in those days was a prized possession, right? I mean, this one's never been driven, right? This donkey's never been driven. It's a brand new donkey, right? And, hey, we need your brand new donkey, all right? Like, we need your brand new car. Well, if the Lord needs it, really? This is 
This is a crazy question. If the Lord needs it, are you willing to give it? Because there might be things in our life that we're like, God, you can have my whole life. I love you. Thank you for salvation. You want me to do what? You want me to go where? You want me to talk to who? You want me to forgive them? If the Lord commands it, will you do it? If the Lord needs it, will you give it? Detailed obedience leads to sacrifice. So if the Lord needs it, your time, your money, your talents, your possessions, your life, will you sacrifice it for his glory? Will you sacrifice it for his glory? Is there anything in your life right now that you're not willing to go, go to, give to, serve in, you name it, for the glory of God? Is there anything? Because he is committed to obedience, but he also commands it. Let me live in and through you. David Platt tells a, he has a sermon, and it's called the Blank Check Sermon. And it's kind of one of those sermons that just sticks with you. You ever, you ever got a blank check from someone? No, right? No, you didn't. So a blank check means that someone just gives you a check and be like, we don't know how much it's going to be, just fill it in, right? Okay, right? Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. Back in the day, before there were church credit cards, this was a crazy practice that happened, okay? I'm just going to be very open and honest with you. I was a youth pastor, and I would go on trips with 30, 40, 50 kids, and the office would say, Jeff, we don't know how much it's going to be. Just take a blank check and fill it in. But you can trust me. I'm honest, okay? You can trust me. So I would take this blank check, and they were like, here's the stipulation. Don't lose it. Don't lose the blank check. And so like, I had the, my binder, and I was like, Come on, kids, let's go. You know, like, can't lose the book. You know, I was like, can I just pay up front? I just got to get rid of this check. Okay, so the idea is that when you come to Christ, your life is a blank check. Okay, God, you fill it in. Whatever you ask, whatever you need, whatever you command, whatever your word says, detailed, you be de as detailed as you need, God, I am a blank check. So this is what David Platt says. Giving one's life as a blank check to God may seem like extraordinary devotion, but a commitment to God, to, a commitment to go wherever God leads is the elementary essence of what it means to follow Christ. I mean, honestly, it, it seems like, whoa, a blank check to God? He could tell you to do anything. He could tell you to give anything. He could tell you to go anywhere. But really, that's like elementary to saying, yeah, I'll follow you. I'll take up my cross. I'll give up my life for you. He says, my life is a blank check before God, no strings attached. What an interesting way to say that, right? Because sometimes we say, God, my life's a blank check, but just don't call me to do that. When we offer God a blank check, we are simply acknowledging that we are presenting to him what he already owns. We call this whole life Generosity. When we say, God, my life is a blank check to you, we're, already, we're just acknowledging the fact that he has redeemed us. He has purchased us. I mean, you think about this for just a second. The King of kings and the Lord of lords who came and lived a perfect life, died the death we should die, but rose again to give us eternal life. One day we're going to die. We're going to stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's going to look at us, and if we're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, it's as if we've never sinned. It's as if we've never done anything wrong. And if that's the reality, then how can we now say, yeah, my life's a blank check, but I don't really 
want to do this. I don't really feel like you're calling me to do this. I'm not really feeling like this is the details that I need to. Let me just be casually obedient. Let me just kind of follow along with the crowd. Let me just be a fan. So is there anything you're not willing to give? Anywhere you're not willing to go? Or anything you're not willing to do for the glory of God and for the advancement of his kingdom? I think this is a question that that we should all write down. Take a picture of it with your phone. I don't know what you want to do. This is a question for self-examination. When it really comes down to what really matters in this life, this short vapor of a life that we have, our lives are here for the glory of God. That's it. For us to say that there's somewhere, or there's something we're not willing to give God, if we're going to say, there's, there's somewhere I'm not willing to go, I'm not willing to do, does that even make sense in the scheme of things? Because God gave his one and only son that we could have life and have it everlasting. He rolls up into Jerusalem on a donkey as the Passover lamb. He's moving towards sacrifice. Detailed obedience that's leading to the sacrifice so that he can be a ransom for many. Our life. Our life is to be spent for the glory of God, and there's no other reason for it. He's worthy. So Jesus is coming in obedience. I love this. Third point, he's coming in obedience. Let's read verse 7 and following. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks, their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their cloaks on the ground and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now this is remarkable because up until this point, Jesus has kind of of had a low profile. He would heal people and even say, hey, don't tell them. Okay, don't tell them what I did. Because his time had not yet come. But now Jesus is like, I'm coming. I'm coming as king. And this whole crowd's going to know that I'm the lineage of David. That I'm the one that was prophesied. I'm the Messiah. And he's rolling up into Jerusalem. And they see him as the coming king. Our coming king. Our Lord lived his life from beginning to end. In total and absolute submission to the word of God. I love what Tim Keller says. We cannot, in the end, follow Jesus without adopting his loyalty to the Bible. And there are so many followers of Jesus that are walking away from the authority of the Bible. So let me say it this way. Followers of Jesus, adopt a loyalty to the Bible. If you call yourself a follower of Christ and your life is lived in blatant opposition to his word, you're not following the Jesus of the Bible. You're following a Jesus that was made up by culture. You're following a Jesus that you made up in your imagination that fits your needs. You're following a Jesus that you think loves you and wants you to be happy. Uh, and, and that's it. He doesn't want you to be holy and, and giving up your life. The Jesus that we follow is the Jesus that followed the Bible in detail. Philippians tells us this in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even 
death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, he's a coming king. And he was coming into Jerusalem that day, and I can tell you this, he was coming into Jerusalem that day by the prophecies that were written in God's word. And I can tell you, he's coming again by the prophecies that are written in God's word. He's a coming king and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We will. And when he comes, I want to be someone that says, my life was a blank check for your glory. That's the life that we're called to. The crowd, however, wanted a political savior, not not the purification of sins. They wanted a political savior. This this is interesting. I I did a little bit of research. And in 175 BC, I'm not going to say his name right, okay? So just judge me if you will. Antichus Epiphanes controlled Judea at the time. He was a Greek king and ruler. And to stop worship of Yahweh in the temple, he erected a statue of Zeus. Okay? Not only that, he sacrificed a pig, which pigs, you know, bacon was bad back in the day, right? So he sacrificed a pig on the altar, and so there was blood everywhere. This was the desecration of the temple. So the Jews, some 10 years later, decided to have a revolt, the Maccabean revolt. This is where you get Hanukkah from, okay? And so this revolt happened, and they, they basically revolted against the Greeks that were controlling the area, kicked them out, and they were like, we're getting our freedom back. And so during this period of time, one of the things they did was they took palm branches and they waved them, and that was like a symbol or a sign of their revolutionary war or whatever. So it would be kind of like a symbol of this is our cause. And so as Jesus is coming in, they're thinking political overthrow of the government. Look at what's about to happen. This is the son of David, and we're about to get our, our land back. It's all about a cause. But Jesus is coming, not for a cause, but to cleanse us from our sins. The crowd still want the same thing today. Often we want to fix things or a feel-good Jesus, not a King Jesus that calls us to follow him in humility. See, Jesus is more than a cause to rally behind. He's a coming king to bow before. And, and I don't know if you, you realize this, but this crowd that we are reading about, they're shouting, save us. They're shouting, Hosanna. They're waving palm branches. And when they realize that Jesus isn't the political overthrow figure that they hoped he would be, and their cause is being lost, the crowd turns hostile. They even become a mob. They go from yelling, save us, to crucify him. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's easy to get a crowd of people gathered together for a cause. And when that cause isn't met, it's easy for that group of people to become hostile. I'm not being political. I'm just telling you, history repeats itself. Like, this is kind of how things happen. And Jesus is far greater than a cause. He's to be the king of our life. He's to be the one that we bow before. And so many Christians make a decision to say, I will follow Christ, and they they say a prayer, or maybe they make a decision at youth camp, or maybe they make a decision at a revival service, 
And they start off pretty strong, but then as the time goes on, just like the crowd, they begin to fall away because their cause isn't being met. Well, Jesus isn't doing what I came to him for. He's not fixing this marriage. He's not fixing my financial problem. He's not fixing this issue that I'm facing. And so as those things, those causes fall by the wayside, people begin to slip away from following Christ. You see, Jesus is Lord of all, or Jesus isn't Lord at all. And I think that's the hard thing for this crowd to realize, that they want him to be Lord, but just over one area. And he's not, he's not Lord over one area, he's Lord of all areas of our life. His Lordship is demonstrated not in the confession of our lips primarily, but in the obedience of our life. I like how J.D. Greer puts it. You don't judge the sincerity of a marriage vow by the lavishness of the wedding ceremony, but by the faithful commitment that follows it. A lavish ceremony without a faithful commitment would be a sham. When it comes to God, a lot of Christians are all ceremony and no marriage. Wow. Is Jesus Lord in the details of your obedience or in the generality of your words? Turn to me to Revelation chapter 19. I want you to see this. Jesus, he's committed to obedience. Jesus is commanding obedience. Jesus is a coming king. He came once and he's coming again. So Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 through 16 say this. This is John the revelator getting a vision. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped with blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Keep reading verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Listen, the first time Jesus came, he came riding on a donkey bringing peace, bringing salvation, being the Passover lamb for our, for our sins. But he's coming again. And detailed to the word of God, because Jesus is the word of God. He's coming on a white horse. And he's coming to bring judgment upon the sin of this world. And every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'd like to end with a couple of verses here out of Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Look, he appeared and we wait because he will appear again. And so in the meantime, we put away the worldly passions. We apply detailed obedience to our life. We give our lives as a blank check to God and say, it's all about your glory because you're coming back. And we wait in anticipation. Jesus is in the details. Jesus is coming again. Jesus appeared once according to God's word and he will appear again according to God's word. So maybe, maybe the fact that you're here this weekend is the proof God hasn't given up on you. You've pushed him away time and time again, but he keeps coming after you. He keeps giving you an opportunity to bow to him in detailed obedience. Let me ask you, is your life a blank check? Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons each week.